what did you expect? It's what you ask when you're trying to emphasize to someone that there really wasn't anything unexpected about what just happened. It's like when Will Turner was fighting Captain Jack Sparrow in the original Pirates of the Caribbean movie. So Jack happens upon Will at his workshop. He's trying to get out of some iron bonds that somebody had handcuffed him with, and uh, Will recognizes him immediately to be a pirate, and he doesn't like pirates. And so as Jack's trying to get away, Will tries to detain him, and there's this sword fight ensues, and it's, it's a good sword fight. But when Will finally gets the upper hand, Jack sprays some dirt or dust in his eyes, and then he pulls his gun on him. That's not what you do in a sword fight. And so Will says, with this look of confusion, you cheated. And Jack simply responds, pirate, what, what did you expect? You know, haters going to hate, pirates going to pirate. And pirates cheat, it's what they do, right? So the question still remains, you know, what did Will expect? He expected Jack to fight according to the gentlemanly rules of sword fight. And that's what disappointed him, what, what even angered him when, you know, Jack did what he did. Will's a rule follower, and he expects everyone else to be a rule follower. Unfortunately, the whole point of the movie <laughs> is to get people like Will and, and anyone, really, to, to not think that, to change their expectations. The whole point comes down at the end when they say that sometimes you need to pirate. So that is not, of course, the point of the Bible, but the Bible is constantly trying to correct our expectations, what we think should be happening you know, we have an idea about the way things are supposed to go. And when they don't go that way, like Will, you know, we get confused, disappointed, even angry. So if we have a clearer picture of the situation, and more importantly, if we have a clear understanding of God, then we could correct those expectations. We could face difficulties and trust God, even as we go through them. Now, I'm not saying we're going to enjoy the difficulties, but we don't have to be confused about them. We can still trust God even as we go through them. And sometimes a story is the best way to confront our wrong expectations with God. So the, the first part of the book of Exodus where we're going we're gonna to be for this series is all about helping Israel know their God. And that's why the tagline I put for this series is brought out of slavery to know the Lord. So Pharaoh, as we, we're going to see, he doesn't know this, this God. But Israel doesn't really know him either. And so God is very deliberate in what he does so that Israel will know their God, so that they'll have the right expectations with this God. Now, we know God's ways aren't our ways. His thoughts aren't our thoughts. But there are some things that you can expect with God. And that's what our passage is really about this morning, helping us to correct our expectations with God. So the story we're looking at, again, it begins in Exodus 5. You can turn there. It's on page 44 in the black Bible there in the seat pocket. And there's a, a chain of conversations in this story. So first you have Moses and Aaron talk with Pharaoh, and then Pharaoh talks to the Egyptian taskmasters and the Hebrew foreman, and then the Hebrew foreman talked to Pharaoh, and then the Hebrew foreman talked to Moses and Aaron, and then finally you have Moses talk to the Lord. So 
we're going to follow that conversation. And what we find are these wrong expectations for God. In the end, that's really what we see and how they're, they're corrected. And this passage helps us understand what are we supposed to do when unexpected things happen. So let's, let's follow this chain of conversations here so that we can have our expectations for God corrected. In the first scene, you have Moses and Aaron confront Pharaoh. Now, as we read this, we need to keep in mind that every, every account in the Bible works this way. There are some details that are included. Others are left out. That's just the nature of recording anything. Can't put in all the details. So we need to be very careful about making assumptions based on what's not included. So for example, it doesn't mention here that the elders were present in this conversation with Pharaoh, even though Exodus 3.18 said they would be there. And, and the truth is, there's actually some details that might point to their presence there, even though it's not stated. But we don't want to draw the wrong conclusions there. Secondly, we need to be careful about doing things like comparing what Moses was told to say and what he does end up saying. Sometimes you could think, well, he's not being faithful. But the instructions that God gives at the beginning, they could be summarized in chapters 3 and 4. And so I think it's safe to assume that if God doesn't correct them for what they say, they're probably not saying the wrong thing. They're being faithful. They may be cowardly, but they are doing their job. So Moses and Aaron, they are able to gain an audience with Pharaoh. And as the prophets they are, they convey to him God's message. They say, thus says the Lord, like the prophets do. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. So they describe what the Lord's demanding as a pilgrimage feast. That's the terminology he uses here. That's the idea of the feast. It's the same terminology that God's going to use to describe the three feasts that they're going to keep when they're in the land. And, And those feasts involved, they were feasts that involved all the the men in the nation traveling to wherever the tabernacle was. So when the temple came to be, all the men are going to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for those feasts. And so that's the term he uses here. It's really just a summary of what he's going to go on to say, uh, a three days journey into the wilderness to sacrifice to our God. There are actually multiple records in Egypt that actually record where the Pharaoh let the slave off work to go and sacrifice to their God. It's actually a, a record in Egypt. So what they're requesting here is not an unreasonable, it's not an out-of-the-ordinary request. But look at what Pharaoh says in response. It says in verse 2, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. I don't think Pharaoh realized it, but he just threw down the gauntlet. And this is exactly what this first part of Exodus is all about. Throughout the book, the Lord says that he's about to do something so that the people will know that I am the Lord. He he does that. That includes the Israelites and the Egyptians. Also includes Pharaoh. So who is the Lord is exactly the question that God is going to answer in this whole, whole first part of Exodus. When Pharaoh says this, he doesn't necessarily mean that he's never heard of Yahweh before. The first question is really more of an insult. He's he's showing contempt for God. He's saying, who is Yahweh that I'd have to obey him? And then he uses that word no, but he's not using it. Again, he's not using it here in an absolute sense. He's 
He's using it in a relational sense. He's saying he has no relationship to this God. He, as far as he was concerned, he had nothing. He owed this God nothing. And you have to remember that according to Egyptian theology, the Pharaoh has a divine part to him. He's thought to be the son of Amun-Ra. So he's thinking, what could this tribal God of this enslaved people do to me? And so he, he disdainfully refuses to acquiesce to their request. He says, I will not let Israel go. Moses and Aaron don't give up. They give even more information. They say that the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he befall on us with pestilence or with sword. They're saying, look, we've, we've had a good encounter with our God. We don't want to have a bad one. And what they say here is really a slight warning to Pharaoh because what they've included could have implications for him and for Egypt. This pestilence and the sword, it's a way of talking about an attack. That could impact the Egyptians. And again, this is not an out-of-the-ordinary request. Going three days' journey into the wilderness to sacrifice to Yahweh their God. Pharaoh had no doubt on numerous occasions, maybe even thousands of times, led a slave off of work to go and do this. Many of those slaves were foreigners. They had foreign gods. Wasn't, this wasn't exceptional in any way. So the Pharaoh's response in verse 4 is this. He says, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. It's interesting to me. This is the only time in this section where the Pharaoh is referred to in the text as the king of Egypt. He is elsewhere in, Egypt, in, in Exodus. He is in the next chapter, for example. So it could just be a normal variation you find in good writing. But... It also just so happens to coincide with a verb that has the same letters found in Pharaoh's name. It's a verb that talks about letting loose. I think there might be a little wordplay going on here. Pharaoh's asking Moses and Aaron, why are you pharaohing the people from their work? Saying, why are you letting them loose instead of helping them obey? Pharaoh sees Moses and Aaron really as, as trying to stop the people from doing what he wanted them to do. He's in charge. He's the king. And so he tells them, and, and it seems like when he says this, he's also talking to the elders that are there. Get back to your burdens. Stop all this lollygagging. Get back to work. And he doesn't stop there. He goes on to say in verse 5, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens? I think Walter Kaiser Jr.'s uh, insights into this verse were the best in explaining it. He, he says, this is basically what was being expressed. There are already too many people, and should he give them rest from their labors to further increase their numbers? If you remember the earlier Pharaoh's idea that they were, they were being fruitful and multiplying, and so his idea was to stop that, we're going to give them work. So what this Pharaoh is basically saying is, are you crazy? These people are like rabbits. You give them rest, they're going to double in number. We're not doing that. So what's also interesting is the wording that Pharaoh uses here for rest is the same word that's used for Sabbath rest. It's actually the word where we get the word Sabbath from. So anybody reading this passage, they're going to recognize that. They're going to recognize that even though Pharaoh was unwilling to give the people rest, God was going to give them rest. Now, even though Moses had been warned, Pharaoh's, he's going to 
he's going to be stubborn. He's going to refuse this. What happened next, he was not expecting. So after this confrontation, Pharaoh then commands the Egyptian taskmasters and Hebrew foremen. Beginning in verse 6, it says, The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters and the people and their, of the people and their foremen. Don't waste any time. So he immediately gets to work on, on responding to, to this in a more thorough way. He's, he's addressing this distraction from Aaron and Moses. I mean, he, he kind of viewed them as messing around with him. He had a good thing going. And so he's basically saying, wait till they find out what I've got up my sleeve. They, there's two groups that he speaks to. There's Egyptian taskmasters and then Hebrew foremen. And it's great when you're, you're studying a passage like this and you see the way that it perfectly fits the time that the Bible's presenting. So this is one of those places where you see that this is exactly what you'd expect to find at the time that the Bible's saying this happened. This is telling us the Bible's trustworthy. So these Egyptian taskmasters, they're the ones who are directly in charge of the slaves. And they're the ones who would have passed down Pharaoh's commands, his directives, made sure to enforce them. And then you had Hebrew slaves that have been given a measure of oversight over the rest of the slaves. And this is the kind of thing that happens in labor camps. And it would have definitely given these Hebrew slaves a little bit of, they'd have some benefits to this position. And based on the wording for foremen here, they were able to write, they probably were record keepers. So their job was probably to record how many bricks each slave had done to see if they met their quota. And again, there's actually records that we found in Egypt of lists of slaves with a number next to it, actually a series of numbers and a total and a message that says if they met their quota or not. And so that's what these, these Hebrew slaves were doing. So here's their instructions that they pass down to the slaves. Pharaoh says in verses 7 and 8, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it. So if you remember, the, the Israelites were given a task early on in the first chapter of building up these two cities. Um, they were probably building things like barracks or storehouses. And in Egypt, those kinds of buildings, they used brick to build. They reserved stone for their religious buildings. So they made bricks and they used straw for stability for the brick. One, one commentator mentioned how you could go to the Field Museum in Chicago and they found bricks from Egypt that have straw in them. You could see the straw. They're from even before this time, actually. So again, this fits with the archaeological evidence. So Pharaoh, what he does here is he takes away one of their supplies that they need to make these bricks so that they now have to go and gather the, the straw for themselves, gather their own supplies. But he says that they're not going to reduce the quota. So they have more work, less time to basically accomplish that task, but they have to get the same results. They have to have the same, meet the same expectations. And then here's his reasoning. For they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to their God. They're lazy, he says. That's why they're saying this. It's not a genuine request. And maybe he's saying that to the people he's telling this to because this was such a normal request. You know, why isn't Pharaoh letting them do this? So he goes on in verse 9 to explain, let heavier work be laid on the men 
that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. Again, he's saying that these are not genuine words from a God. So let this heavy work basically keep them from setting their hopes on this, this false message. So the Egyptian and the Hebrew overseers, they, they relay this me- message. But notice the wording. They say, thus says Pharaoh. In verse 1, you have, thus says the Lord. Now you have, thus says Pharaoh. It's pointing to the divine status that Pharaoh was supposed to have. So Desmond Alexander, he explains the significance of this. He says, these parallel statements capture well the nature of the conflict that occupies the early chapters of Exodus. Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, and Pharaoh, the divine king of Egypt, are set in opposition to one another. So the officers are basically saying, you know, you may have heard something from your divine Yahweh about a break and uh, a festival in the wilderness. Well, the divine Pharaoh, he has this to say, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves, wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. What I'm most shocked by is how these Hebrew foremen complied with this. I mean, they're slaves too, and they went along with it. I, I, I can understand why they might do that, though. I mean, they have a pretty good gig. They're not the ones slaving over the bricks. They have a desk job. And, I mean, they may have even started to separate themselves from the other slaves. Like, we're better than you. So they're on the inside of this command. They have no idea. They do not expect what happens next because they are the ones that get punished for this inevitable failure. And so the next conversation you see is the Hebrew foreman complaining to Pharaoh. So watch how this happens. Beginning in verse 12, it says, so the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. So you can imagine they used to get their straw in nice bundles. Now they, they aren't. So Kent Boffman, he's, he's told me how places like KTH work. KTH makes car parts. So what you have is you have people driving forklifts. They're taking different supplies, and they're bringing them to workplaces so that people can assemble parts. Well, imagine there are no forklifts. And now every workstation, all those people, they now have to go and get their supplies and bring it back to their workstation. Well, they're not going to get as many parts assembled, are they? And that's really the situation here. The Israelites... They now have to go into the already harvested fields. All that's left is the stubble. That's just basically the little bit of the stalk that's left after a scythe came through and chopped everything down. They put it into bundles. So that's not going to be as much straw as you would have got with these bales of straw. So it's slim pickets out in the field. It's not as much straw. Maybe it was more than our modern combines leave behind, but... The other problem is that the stalks, they're out there in the sun. So they're also drying out. They're also breaking off and blowing away. So this was much more difficult. They weren't going to be able to make as many bricks with that added step, with less straw. Some of them may have tried to cut corners by not putting straw in the bricks. Supposed to help the bricks with their stability. And there's actually evidence of that. One commentator pointed out how in one of the possible sites for the city of Pithom, which is mentioned as one of these cities they were building up, they came across very rare bricks that did not have straw. So they tried to cut corners, but it wasn't enough. The taskmasters, they were on, they were shouting, complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. Look at verse 14, it says, the foreman 
of the people of Israel whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them were beaten and were asked, why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? If you're one of the foremen, I mean, you're in shock. You're like, you guys were there. You guys were there when Pharaoh told us what was going on. This is not fair what, what's happening here. They, they knew this strategy was doomed for, for failure. So, I mean, they're still being beaten now. They're the ones being beaten by the taskmasters. So it's obvious to these Hebrew foremen, they're not going to get anywhere with the taskmasters. They know how this works. They have to go and talk to Pharaoh. And we might think that's, that's unrealistic, that they would be able to go and speak to Pharaoh. But actually in the ancient Near East, kings were supposed to be accessible to common people. And so they go to Pharaoh and they plead with him, why do you treat your servants like this? So notice they're already saying, we're your servants. We belong to you. Why are you doing this to us? And so you can hear emotion as they, they cry out with this, this complaint. It's used, it's, it's terse language, they say. It's, it's abrupt in Hebrew. So the text reads, straw, there's not given for your servants, but bricks, they're saying to us, make. And then they say, look at this. Your servants are being beaten, but it's your people who have failed. Pharaoh, he, he isn't having any of it. He responds by simply shouting back, lazy. You are lazy. That's why you're doing this. That's why you're saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. So he just tells them to get back to work. He says, nothing's changing. This is how it's going to be. So you better get busy because you have a quota to fulfill. He's, he's heartless. This is what happens when God's people ask Pharaoh a reasonable request. You know, he's not, they're not asking for their freedom. That's the ultimate end of this. They don't ask. They ask for something reasonable, and this is how Pharaoh responds. He, the people do not really belong to him. Just keep that in mind. He doesn't rightfully own them. And, and this is now made very clear what kind of a man this is. So even after a reasonable request, just a normal kind of request, this is the kind of treatment they receive. Notice then, though, how the Hebrew foremen respond. So Moses and Aaron, they're not expecting what comes next. The Hebrew foremen, they come and they complain to Moses and Aaron. Verse 19 says, the, the foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce their number of bricks, your daily task each day. They knew they were in trouble. And who's there to greet them as soon as they come to this realization? But Moses and Aaron. Verse 20 basically explains that Moses and Aaron, they must have known about this meeting and they are there waiting for them. They're, they want to find out how it went. Well, the foremen are more than happy to tell them how it went. To me, it sounds like their response sounds like Mr. Garvey, the substitute teacher in one of those comedy sketches. They see Moses and Aaron coming and they say, you done messed up, Aaron. You messed up. This is your fault. And I, I think of that because they're just about as confused as that substitute teacher. They're, they're confused about this. Look at their response. They say, the Lord, look on you and judge. They just did the Lord's task. And they're saying, the Lord is on our side. This is, this is how you stress that you're in the right. This is what, what you say. This is the kind of language Sarah used on Abram with the Hagar incident. And she was by no means innocent. But she's clearly blaming everything on Abraham when she says, may the Lord judge between you and me. And this is the same language that you find with David when he's running from Saul. Saul's trying to kill him, and Saul goes into that cave to use the restroom. 
And David's in there. And he sneaks up, and he could have killed him. But he cuts off a piece of his robe. And, he, and then as Saul's trying to leave, he comes out, and he reveals himself, and he says, look, I could have killed you. You're in the wrong. This is what he says. May the Lord judge between me and you. So when they say this, what they're saying is the Lord would agree with us. You're to blame. You're the problem, Moses and Aaron. You done messed up. So they tell Moses, you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants. They're comparing the Egyptians' feelings about them to how you feel about something that stinks. And what do you do when something stinks? What do you do when the trash in your kitchen stinks? You get rid of it. You take it out. So they're saying, you have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Basically, you've just given them a great reason to get rid of us, to kill us. You punched them in the mouth, and then you gave these, these crazy lunatics a loaded gun. That's what you've done. You're trying to get us killed. This is all your fault. So like I said, this is not what Moses and Aaron expected to happen. They'd just done what God told them to do. They gave God's message to Pharaoh. They even warned Pharaoh. They told him, what could happen? Now, what they more literally said in verse 3 is for fair to let them go lest God attack them by means of a plague or by means of a sword. The word they use here, you could translate attack. It's translated met here. It's the same word used in verse 3. And I think it has the same aggressive tone. Basically, they thought, okay, God could punish us. He could attack us. They had no idea that their own people were going to attack them. And that's what happens. And, and again, they, they thought it was possible for God to bring a sword. They had no idea that it was possible that they could do something that brings a sword. So with all these unexpected happenings, look what Moses does. He complains to the Lord. Now, he is deferential. I mean, he begins with the lowercase term, Lord. This is master. But he basically accuses the Lord of causing this evil against his people. So just as the Hebrew foremen are blaming Moses and Aaron for what happened, Moses is blaming the Lord. And, and he says, basically, besides all this fallout, the Lord hadn't even done what he said he would. He says, you have not delivered your people at all. It's, it's an emphatic statement. You could translate it, and you certainly haven't delivered your people. Now, the Lord is very patient with Moses in response. He doesn't actually try to straighten Moses out. And I think he doesn't straighten him out because it is complicated. Moses is not all wrong. We, the text doesn't try to defend the Lord the way that we often do with things like this. You know, We'd often try to say, you know, God had nothing to do with that. He wasn't in control. This is just the free choice of a sinful man. Now, on the one hand, we, we do want to say this is the sinful choice of a free person, a free sinful choice. But we should never say God was not in control of it, even when it involves evil. Like Moses, or sorry, like Job, Moses knows that both good and evil come from God's hand. Certainly more could be said. No, Pharaoh is absolutely responsible for what he's done. Nothing, God is not sinful. 
But God does mean for this to happen. It's not out of God's control. Nothing is out of God's control. So we often want to rescue God from things like this. The Bible never does. What the Lord goes on to explain in verse 1 of the next chapter is that this is exactly what was supposed to happen. The word now that begins the Lord's response is basically suggesting that, that this is what had to happen. Basically saying, now that this has happened, Moses, you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. With a strong hand, he will send them out. With a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. There's some ambiguity there in whose strong hand this is. But based on what the Lord will say elsewhere, I think this is the Lord's strong hand. Basically, God is going to display his power. Now that Pharaoh has set this up so well, exactly as God planned, he's going to put on display who he truly is. And in the end, Pharaoh's not not just going to comply with the command. He's going to drive the people out. So some things that God does are always going to be unexpected. I mean, we've talked about that. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So the first thing that we might say in response to a passage like this is that with God, the one thing you can expect is the unexpected. We don't know what's best for us. God's plans are comprehensive. He is planning everything that goes on in the universe. He has lots of things going on. So his plans for us individually, they may not make sense to us, but we have a very limited view of what's really going on. He has the full view. He knows what truly is is best. So why, why is it that what the Lord does can be so unexpected at times? I think it's unexpected because of what we do expect. We expect that if we obey the Lord, there's not going to be any opposition or trouble, and we did what the Lord wanted. God calls us to a task. We expect that we're going to be able to complete the task. We're going to be able to meet with immediate results, immediate success. And when that doesn't happen, we get confused. We can get upset, even angry. Why didn't my obedience result in what I thought it would? I think Philip Ryken was very helpful. He gave some examples of this in our lives today. He, he talked about a missionary couple who went to the mission field with their very young children, despite the fact that their unbelieving parents told them not to do it. And after obeying the Lord's calling, and, and shortly after they arrived, one of their children contracted a rare, life-threatening disease, and they had to come back home. He also mentioned a person who'd, who discovered some corruption in the company that he worked for. And after agonizing over what he should do, his integrity eventually caused him to say he had to bring it to light. But when he did, he was viewed as a troublemaker. He wasn't given promotions. Riken goes on to write, these kinds of things happen all the time. A woman refuses a man who is not a Christian. Now she is still waiting for the right man, but no one ever calls. An employee refuses to work on Sundays and gets fired three months later. A mother does everything she can to raise her children right and then watches them squander her love by turning away from God. 
pastor starts to teach the Bible, but rather than growing, his congregation starts to shrink. It happens often. A Christian does what God calls him to do, and it makes things worse. Such developments make us start to wonder if we did the right thing and maybe even wonder if God cares what happened to us. But that's not what we should wonder because it's not what we should expect. What we can expect, what we must expect is that God, that all God does is right. That all God says is right. We can expect that he has reasons why he tells us to do the things that he tells us to do and why he does the things that he does. Those are the right expectations that we should have for God. But we are not right to expect that when we obey, it will go well for us. And you could say, that's not fair. Tell that to Jesus. Did he obey his father? Perfectly. Did it go well for him? No. Was that the plan? Yes. And was it a good plan? For you and me, it was. This is a fallen world, full of sinners, and we're part of the mess. In God's grace, we're we're getting delivered from it, but we have not reached the final phase of our deliverance. We are still in this fallen world, and we're called to follow our Savior. We're following him down the same path he took. The path of suffering only leads to glory in the end. So while we walk this path, a path, again, that's repeated by God's people over and over again. You see it in the Bible path of difficulty and suffering, as we walk that path, we need to trust our God. We need to believe that he truly is our almighty father. Alec Motyer writes, many Christians are given the opportunity in Sunday worship to affirm, I believe in God, the father almighty. This is all well and good, but we do not actually know that we truly believe in such a God until Monday faces us with experiences which suggest that he is far from almighty and pretty unfatherly. Testing has its place and purpose. We're called to take the same path that our Savior took so that we can come to know better and better the God of our salvation and so that we can demonstrate over and over again that we're trusting in him, not just so that he'll be our lucky charm so that we can have an easier life. We're trusting in him because we love him and we know that life with him is better than anything we could have in this life. So these tests that we go through, they are that. They're tests of our faith. Remember how Jesus described the counterfeit faith of some. I mean, it's genuine in a sense, but it's, it's not the lasting, genuine, saving faith that endures to the end. And he mentioned that in his parable of the soils. Remember the person who receives it with joy. But then these troubles happen. And what was really important to them reveals itself. When you 
recognize your sinfulness. And when you recognize that there is salvation in Jesus and you trust in him, and then you experience hardship and difficulty, what else did you expect? It's what Jesus faced. It's what his disciples faced. It's what he told us we would face. It's what he tells anyone who would become his disciple. He tells them from the beginning. He says, you need to pick up a cross and follow me. It's not an option. It's not just for the really good disciples. It's for all of us. The cross is our expectation. Don't lose the significance. Don't lose sight of the significance of that statement. Recognize that in the first century, Romans wouldn't even talk about crucifixion. It was too horrific. This was the ultimate humiliation of someone tortured to death. So there is a little bit of symbolism in saying take up your cross. I'll admit that because, frankly, over history, not very many Christians have actually been crucified. Well, what does that represent? What does that mean to pick up your cross? It, it represents the willingness to lay aside everything for Christ. The willingness to suffer the loss of anything for his sake. Why? Why would we do that? I mean, why follow Christ if you can expect a cross? Because we can also expect a crown in the end. The future glory, Paul says, isn't even worth comparing with anything we go through in this life. It's the glory of God's presence. It is the perfect enjoyment of life with God. It's worth it. And the opposite is not worth it. If you try to hang on to your life in the present, you will lose it in the end. That's what Jesus said. But if you give up your life for his sake, you will find it in the end. True life. I understand the Israelites. I understand Moses very well. I understand why they react this way. And it is, it makes perfect sense. It is hard not to re- react this way, especially living in a country like we have. I mean, realize we have it better than most people on the planet. We have it better than most people who have ever lived. I mean, you talk about indoor plumbing, indoor climate controls. You talk about the beds we get to sleep on, just cars, vehicles. We live like royalty. So, I mean, it's hard not to expect good things. We have been pampered to expect the best. And we live in this culture that basically tells us, yes, it's all about you. You need to feel good. You need to like what's happening to you. And if you don't, that's the major problem. It's really hard for us to actually face life with the expectations we as Christians are supposed to have. But you know what? It would have been hard even if you were slaves in Egypt. They have this trouble too. It's natural to assume that if you do what God wants you to do, then he's going to do what you want him to do. But there is no quid pro quo with God. That's not what it's about. What it's about is the truth. There's one God in three persons. 
We are all sinners in need of his grace. And that God has shown us grace in Christ. So believe that. Really believe it, and then expect what he's taught us to expect. A difficult path that leads to our final salvation, a salvation that is truly worth it. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we, we haven't experienced what you experienced. I mean, from the very beginning, you deserved glory and adoration. You gave up the honor that your, your deity deserved. To become a slave, you say, but through Paul. For us. To go through not just death, but death on a cross. And then you call us to that. To follow you. You did that for the joy set before you. And if you can go through that, with the joy set before you, help us to see that it is worth it. Even though these unexpected things happen, and much of the time it's, it's exacerbated by our own expectations, our wrong expectations. When these difficulties, trials happen, help us to look to you, the author and finisher of our faith. Help us to step into your footprints, to know that we are experiencing no less than what you experienced, that you did that for us, and that you are worth it, and knowing you is worth it. Help us to say with Paul that we would suffer the loss of all things for your sake, to know you in the power of your resurrection by knowing you in the fellowship of your suffering. That is not something that is easy to say and mean. And we know that you didn't enjoy suffering, but you did trust your Father, and you did see the joy on the other side. So help us to experience the joy of knowing you. Help us to know that that, even that, is worth it. Nearness to you is our good. And strengthen us by your word and by your spirit to keep going, to not lose heart, to have the right expectations, to expect a cross, even as we look forward expectantly to a crown one day. Keep us from treating you as a means to an end. To think that if we do good things, if we listen to you, Jesus, then, then you're going to do good things to us. Help us not to treat you that way. And I pray that anyone who isn't following you, maybe 
Maybe there are those who would say that they believe in you. They believe you're their Savior, but they don't treat you like their, their Lord. Help them to recognize what genuine faith looks like. Help them to turn from everything. Say, I'm willing to do what you want. No, they can only do that when your spirit causes them to to see the truth. That they would see that truth. They would recognize, especially those that may be distracted by a, a, a faith that isn't truly committed. They would see the truth. Help us. Help us to look to you and to follow you. Amen.